and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I'm joined by Jodan Ledford, CEO of Smart, a global record keeper and one of the UK's largest providers of retirement plans and pooled employer plans. Smart has built 100% cloud-based technology and turnkey solutions for advisors and employers of all kinds, ranging from the gig economy and small businesses to major corporations. Smart hired Jodan last year to enter the U.S. market in response to the passing of the SECURE Act, an act that is helping change retirement planning across the U.S. Smart's record-keeping and retirement solutions are custom-built for the pooled employer plans that the SECURE Act now allows. Don't worry, we'll explain all of this during the episode. In today's episode, Jodan and I dive into the SECURE Act and its key stipulations, the power of pooled employer plans, his vision for Smart's U.S. growth, his advice for founders looking to start a company retirement plan, and much more. Let's get started. So hi, Jodin, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're very excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited myself. So I saw Smart opened its US HQ in Nashville. Is that where you're located right now? I am, yeah. So we had a, a few reasons we were looking at a couple different cities. I myself was based in Chicago for the last seven years, and I got to know Smart. So I came on as US CEO, I guess technically in September, but I accepted the position back in July. And I got to know Smart because prior to this, I was working at a company called Legal in General, which is a very large global financial services entity, but in the US doesn't carry much of a brand. But I was overseeing a large portion of the business here in the US. And actually, Legal in General owns as a strategic investor in Smart. So I got to know Smart via that connection. I kind of had a view that the, the next iteration of financial services is going to be won more by the technology providers than it was necessarily going to be by the legacy service providers who were going to have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to transform their technology. And so I got to know the team at Smart and they came in and asked me if I wanted to run the US business. We'll go and get some of those dynamics. And they're like, we're just going to get you an office in Chicago, like a block away from where your current office is. And like, nothing's got to change. And I was like, well, I don't really want to stay in Chicago. I'm from Miami, Florida originally. And that climate is just not for me, let's say. And so then we, we started looking around at what cities we would want to actually launch the business. And so it was during COVID. So some limitations with respect to being able to go and travel and see some of the cities made it hard. But we kind of looked at the main cities that you would expect of today, which is firmly assembled cities, Denver, Austin, Nashville, Atlanta, Charlotte. We basically eliminated Denver and Austin. Denver, because it's a UK firm, it's founded in the UK. You start getting further and further west time zone issues and overlaps right. and working, ways of working become difficult. So we kind of eliminated that one. Austin, while it's great, is actually quite expensive for trying to you know, relocate work, uh, workforce there and also future office space. So then we got down to Nashville, Charlotte, and Atlanta, and uh, ultimately became pretty clear that Nashville is a evolving into a technology hub with you know, likes of Amazon putting 5,000 people here. Uh, Google's got a fiber hub here, and also becoming a bit of a financial services uh, hub as well. Alliance Bernstein relocated folks here. UBS has got a pretty big footprint here on the asset management side. And Nashville's just got a great culture. So you know we decided that good climate, good culture, emerging technology center. It just felt like a really good fit for us. And so we decided to launch a business here in Nashville. I moved down in September and we'll be in our permanent home probably March 1st, office space-wise, which is also a bit nebulous because it's kind of like we're not sure when the actual workforce will be back in the office, given that we're still raging in the middle of COVID, but we will have a permanent home here pretty shortly. 
great. And yeah, so for our listeners who don't know, I also went to college in Nashville. I absolutely love the town. I think it's a great, great place to start a company. I know Miami and Austin and Denver have been kind of stealing the spotlight the last you know yeah. year or so, but Nashville is an awesome place. Great food, great culture, such a livable city, good weather, although August can be just oppressively hot. So let's just jump right in. So for our listeners who maybe are not as familiar with the retirement planning sector, what is SMART and what problem is it trying to solve? What SMART is trying to solve is the retirement industry in the U.S. has kind of a colorful history going back to the early 70s. So you had a, a very big piece of legislation that came out called ERISA, uh, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. And so that kind of laid the foundation. And at that point in time, it was very much a what was called a defined benefit type framework for pension for retirement plans. And so a defined benefit is a very neat kind of retirement plan feature that for lots of reasons kind of outlives its usefulness. And so what a defined benefit plan is, effectively you work for a company, they tell you a formula that when you get to the end of, of your days working there and you retire, that they're going to replace some portion of your income. So typically, you know, underlying kind of best practices back in the day, if you could work somewhere and get 60% of your income replaced in retirement, between that benefit from the company, your own personal savings, Social Security, you could replace 100% of your income. And a defined benefit is something that pays you until you die. And so from that perspective, it's the ultimate retirement security. So the problem is, is that ultimately, that's a liability, and that's a defined liability that companies have to manage. And so for lots of reasons we could go into our podcast, assets weren't managed in concert with liabilities for a long period of time. So there became very large funding deficits that arose over time. And so companies were reevaluating their commitment to those types of benefits. The other thing that happened over that period of time was that life expectancy, you know, kind of blossomed. And so it used to be that a pension plan was created because it was workforce management. You would basically try to incentivize people to stop working. It started with the railroads and the American Express. And basically the idea was is that they were having people literally dying on the railroads. And they're like, eh, this doesn't seem like a good idea. So maybe we should find a way to get them off the workforce. The problem was is that when you retired at age 65 in the 30s, you had maybe four years left of, or five years left. Now, you know, it's a 20-year proposition. So you can end up paying more to people in retirement than they actually were paid while they worked for you. And so that's kind of a, a backwards you know, benefit situation. So ERISA, the legislation also created Section 401k, which at that point in time was meant to be a savings vehicle. Somebody, I'm pretty sure it's Johnson & Johnson in the 80s, determined that you could turn that into a retirement plan. And so the dynamics completely shift. It's a huge risk transfer dynamic, but basically the difference between a defined benefit plan and a 401k or a defined contribution plan is a defined benefit tells you how much income you're going to get through the entirety of your retirement. Defined contribution tells you how much the company is going to contribute alongside of you to help you grow a pool of money when you get to retirement. But then ultimately, when you get to retirement, you're kind of left to your own devices to actually facilitate income through retirement, which is a really big, really big problem. I'm a former actuary, so I can think through how a big balance of money converts into a, an income stream, but that's mathematics that the average person probably doesn't isn't really like focused on in their day to day life, or should they be? Honestly, they should be helped facilitate that solution. So long-winded answer here, I know, but uh, ultimately there's been a lot of retirement legislation that's passed over the last couple of four or five decades. The most recent one was a piece of legislation called the Secure Act in late 2019. And actually it's a really foundational piece of legislation that was actually the catalyst for me to leave the asset management industry and come to the technology industry. So what the Secure Act is doing is the biggest issue we have in the US now with retirement is one, an access issue. So availability for workers and two, and ability to help people take those balances of money and convert them into stable income streams. And so the legislation was focused on both of them. It created something called a pooled employer plan, 
which is effectively a platform solution that allows lots of small businesses to come together into one platform. And while you could be a retirement plan with a couple million dollars in assets, if you come together with lots of other companies into a platform, now you look like a $10 billion, $20 billion plan, and you can go and negotiate much lower costs of administration, costs of investments. But really, the process administratively just is now boiled down to one decision. Which platform do I want to join and what features are they providing me? So the access point is looking to be solved by this vehicle, this pooled employer plan. And so SMART in the UK, England and the UK had legislation back in 2015 because the UK is a much less mature defined contribution market. They put legislation in place that said that every company had to offer a 401k analogous defined contribution plan. And the way that they achieved it was via these platforms, these employer plans. They call them master trusts there, but it's effectively the same type of vehicle. So Smart has a chassis that's already built to deliver volume, um, especially at the small end of the market. The, the master trust in the UK has over 75,000 employers. In a five-year period, the average company size is roughly nine. And so that's exactly what the government is trying to attack here is get access to small employers who haven't had the ability to, to give retirement plans in the past because, let's be honest, if you're a nine-person company, the opportunity cost of time for the CEO or whoever runs the business to implement a 401k plan is not worth their time. So it's basically creating a vehicle to make it worth their time to be able to offer a retirement plan. There's a chance that legislation in the US comes down the pike that makes it also mandatory. And you can think about these pooled employer plans as maybe a staging process where they're doing that. So our business is coming in and providing those platform solutions to be able to bring together the investments, all the cash flow, you know, kind of reconciliations and notifications, also work on the administration side, make sure that we're filing all the forms with respect to the government requires, and then being able just to make sure all of the underlying entities talk to each other. Got it. And so, so I want one more clarifying question. So let's say I'm a small business, I own a small fintech company, or I own a dry cleaning shop down the road. How do I interact with Smart? Do I interact with Smart at all? Or am I working with an advisor of some sort who is then powered by Smart? So the way that Smart's built is we can work in a situation where we make the journey for an advisor to help their business owner client sign up very easy and seamless a process that takes, if you bring the right information to it, it's a process that takes less than an hour to sign up a plan and have it administered. But it also will undoubtedly be a self-service option with respect to employers coming and uh, wanting to sign up themselves and go platform. They can do that on a self-service basis. So the technology is there for both. In the situation where advisors are playing a role in helping set up the, these plans, there's an element of education and consultation that advisors will have on an ongoing basis. So they have access to educational components and just helping uh, the, the business owner make sure that they, I guess the biggest decision the business owner has to make is to sign up to this specific platform. So the ability to help them underwrite and re-underwrite that decision on an annual basis is something that advisors will probably help out a lot with. Got it. So many of our listeners are fintech founders themselves who must think about managing, setting up, changing these retirement options for their employees. If you had you know, a fintech founder in front of you right now, what advice would you give them? What should they be setting up if there may be one employee versus 20 employees? How should they be planning for their future to scale? So for a fintech founder, I guess what I would say is if you are of the modern era of technology and looking for you know, what the right solution is, you're going to want that to be a very digital experience. You're going to want to be focused on user outcomes and experience, and you're going to want to 
have a sense of what investment objectives you're trying to achieve, be it something that's focused on traditional methodologies like targeted funds, or even probably increasingly given those the demographic of that workforce, having uh, the option to integrate either ESG factors or thematic investing based on values. Those are elements for sure that I think would be taken into account. But undoubtedly, I think the pooled employer plan chassis is more suited for those folks because it's going to allow for them to look like a much bigger plan than they already are, but it also simplifies the decision-making and also gives them the fiduciary protection of the underlying sponsor of the pool employer plan. Got it. And then just kind of changing gears to a more strategic question. There are a lot of existing players. How does Smart kind of think about breaking into the U.S. market? Who are the main competitors it's looking out for? And you know, basically, you know, what is your market entry strategy? So there are a lot of large name brand players in the U.S. And then there's also a lot of emerging technology players in the U.S. And so when you think about some of the larger name ones, I mean, they literally have names on, on football stadiums, right? Like you have Empower Stadium in Denver. You've got Charles Schwab, which everybody knows, but Charles Schwab does a lot of things, but one of them is, is they, they do record-keeping at Transamerica. So there's, there's definitely a lot of larger players, all of which effectively, actually one that kind of just made the news because it's being spun out in the SPAC to go public was a light, which came out um, two days ago, Blackstone spinning a light out to take a public. But if you look at a light, large volumes of assets, only 185 plans or something like that, I think that's what the quote was. If you just translate what Smart has done in the UK to the US at 75,000 plans, it would make us the second largest record keeper in the US by plan volume, not, not asset volume, by plan volume. So a lot of these larger institutions are built on servicing larger plan size employers. And so the ability to scale and deliver volume via their platforms um, they might not have been configured that way. So like, I'm not going to throw dirt on people or whatnot, but they, they just might not have been oriented that way. And even the, the fintech startups that have come out, the guidelines, the betterments for business, the ubiquities, a lot of them came to the market with a model and a pre-pooled employer plan legislation, which is basically like, there's too much cost in this market. Let's use technology to deliver a low cost solution, but it's direct to plan sponsor. There's not that fiduciary elements. You're kind of stuck with whatever their fund lineups are to some extent. That's where they actually oversight of the fund lineups might be with their revenue generating process or major revenue generating avenue. And they just weren't built to be a platform solution. So our approach in the market then is to come in and honestly, like the participants are going to know who smart is because we're ultimately cutting the checks and we're ultimately the platform they have to engage in. But the idea that we need to be this large branded entity in the U.S. is not something that's a, a huge objective of ours. Ours is, some people think it's a good movie, some think it was a bad movie. Guy Ritchie made a movie, it was the King Arthur movie, the guy that Charlie Hunnam was from, Sons of Anarchy, he was in it. But it, it's a fun movie, irrespective of your points of it. But he always did the same thing. He's like, why well, have enemies when you can have friends, right? And so that's basically what Smart's going to be, is, is why have enemies when you can have friends? So we're looking to help people power solutions. Um, and so from that perspective, we might be working with somebody who wants to come in and be the named fiduciary who wants to manage all the underlying participants. And we are just the connective tissue, or I like to say the grout inside the mosaic that they're bringing. There's an opportunity that we could even work with other larger record keepers to the extent that our platform is already built for volume and built to be a cost-effective solution for very small businesses. And so that's why I value what all the other record keepers out there are doing, because I do also think there's potentially part possible ways to partner. Ultimately, our goal and our mission is to try to help close this coverage gap and give people access to retirement, because being somebody who spent their entire career in retirement plans, it's a huge issue that is imminently solvable, especially with technology at this point in time. Yeah, that was great. And I mean, clearly, you've been in this business for a long time, and you have this great mission. 
you're laying out from the technological standpoints, you know, how we can move forward to accomplish this mission. What about from the regulatory side? The SECURE Act is a great start. Is there anything else, if you have the pen on the next draft of the SECURE Act, that you would really like to see from the U.S. government moving forward? Yeah, I want to make friends and not enemies here, so I'll be as uh, you know, <laughs> diplomatic as I can. Right. So there was some legislation that, that was brought to the floor of the House in last session, you know, under the Trump, Trump administration where you had a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. And it was, for lack of a better creative term, it was affectionately deemed Secure 2.0. And so there's some elements, we didn't really get in the nitty-gritty of Secure Act, but in addition to facilitating these, the, the chassis or the vehicle for employer plans, it also provided incentives. We have the largest retirement market in the world that was built primarily on tax incentives. So it's not compulsory, but it says if you adopt a plan, you can have 50% of your administrative expenditures covered for a period of time. So the Secure Act 2.0 uh, effectively doubles down on that, comes out and says, okay, we really want you guys to offer these plans. So we're going to cover 100% of your uh, administrative expenses for the first three to five years. But in addition, we want you to automatically enroll individuals in your organization. So you default them into the plan and you default them at a contribution rate of 6% of their income. And then on an annual basis, you escalate that until they're 10%. And in addition, you know, the real power of this is to get the companies to match as well. So the Secure 2.0 came out and said, we'll cover effectively $1,000 ahead of matching contributions for the first five years. It's like a wear away element that's technical, but effectively that's what they're trying to do. That's a phenomenal addition to what the Secure 1.0 would do. It also looked to address allowing additional annuity features instead of a qualified retirement plan, which is also very, very needed because of, you know, where we are in the current rate of market environment, kind of current forward inflation expectations. Buying a fixed annuity today might not be the best decision for yourself with respect to what your purchasing power should be in the future. So there's a lot of elements of the Security 2.0 that I think rightly start focusing on getting more and more adoption. So now, flip the page 2021, post the Georgia runoff, we have a you know not an overwhelmingly Democratic House and Senate and obviously the president, but we do have the ability with tiebreakers to kind of push more of, a, of an agenda through that might be focused in a certain ideology and philosophy that before had to be negotiated a bit more because of the bipartisan nature of the different houses of Congress. So what is potentially being discussed in some form or fashion is compulsory plan adoption, making companies have to offer these. And from my, what will seem like a conflicted viewpoint, because obviously I'm in, I'm in this business, which means by definition we make revenue and, and whatnot, but altruistically, it would be a very, very positive step. Now, what Congress is looking at is if you start getting people to save for retirement, you're basically fundamentally removing a taxable portion of their income out of the tax base into a deferred compensation tax scheme, effectively. So from that perspective, there's a real budget element from a costing and scoring perspective that would have to go through. You know, So what could happen is they might say, we want to make plans mandatory, but we'll make them an IRA, and specifically we'll make them a Roth IRA. So for those that you know, are listening are like totally lost, but I'm hoping they've made it this far, so they're like somewhat interested. A Roth IRA is when you put after-tax contributions into a retirement plan. It grows tax-free and it gets taken out of tax-free retirement. Traditional retirement plans are pre-tax, removing from your tax base, grows tax-free, and then you get taxed when you take income in retirement. Honestly, any way it goes, I think mandatory plan legislation is going to be impactful because ultimately, if business owners now have to provide a plan and at a minimum they've provided what's called the IRA, the Roth IRA plan, they might start looking self-interested and then saying, well, if I offer a 401k plan that satisfies my requirement to offer a plan and also provides me a more tax-efficient basis to manage my own retirement savings, 
So I think it'll lead to proliferation of 401k plans and, and pooled employer plan adoption from that perspective. But I do think ultimately the, all the coverage gap statistics that I kind of quoted, this would be very, very impactful. And it's also something that is not immediately a huge burden on the taxpayer, caveating that there's a whole budget element that needs to be reconciled from, from that perspective. So I think giving more features to have creative ways to help people spend through retirement and then giving people more access to retirement via the workplace is undoubtedly where we need to go. And I think the legislation would help do that. If we landed with a secure 2.0 where it's enhanced incentives, that's going to be very impactful too. And I think that's a great outcome. But I also think that getting to a compulsory landscape would be something that would be truly impactful for the individual. And it also is going to, it's not like level the playing field, but if you work for IBM, you're getting afforded a much different opportunity set with your money to save for retirement via their investment selection or their ability from scale to beat people down in price on how they provide services to the, to the retirement plan, that's just not afforded to Joe's Pizza Shop, right? And so it's about kind of a, a fairness of outcomes too, and that that could be facilitated on that side. And so that's kind of my wish list. Great. That was fantastic. And then last question. So you took over as a new CEO of Smart. What did your first kind of 100 days look like? And how did you build and construct this vision and trust among the organization, especially during COVID? Great question. Changing jobs in the middle of COVID, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> what I was looking at my first 100 days was, okay, what's the opportunity at hand, which is just getting into the marketplace of allowing people access to get into a situation where they can care about this outcome-oriented conversation. And, and also really kind of developing a vision of where I think the world's going, which I kind of laid out, because the platform itself, while it does house all the participant information and it has all the endpoint connections via you know, APIs and being cloud-native, to all the other service providers, um, ultimately it's going to need more features and over time, more wellness features. People are going to have to understand how to manage their student debt portfolio, potentially there's emergency needs for cash and how do you facilitate that and tools on the platform, but then ultimately how do you integrate annuities? And so from my perspective, it was kind of laying out the vision and then laying out bite-sized chunks over the next five to 10 years, how we're going to get there. And then figuring out how payroll works for my own business because I was setting up from scratch, right? So uh, so that kind of gives you a sense. So it's kind of balancing the long-term blue sky with near-term credible, and then also just making sure I could get the folks in, that come to the office on, you know, which nobody does, the virtual office, making sure that they get paid. So there were some blocking and tackling elements that I couldn't keep take my eye off either in, in that regard. Great. So Jordan, this has been fantastic. You've now entered the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. I've oh, got perfect. about eight to 10 questions for you. 10 seconds answer response max. Okay. You ready? All right. All right. First one. So should 401ks be auto opt-in at companies with kind of a base amount? I think the math works out that I think people should be auto-enrolled into a 401k plan. We can debate whether or not they should be auto-enrolled at 3% or 6%, but somewhere in that range, I think makes sense. The panacea really is to try to get people to 10%. I think that's where the tipping point math kind of works out, but depends on what your income range is. That that answer varies, but yes, they should be auto-enrolled. So I'll keep to the timing. Sorry, I can get (laughs) long-winded. No problem. All right. We have a lot, a lot of listeners who are moving to Miami, venturing to Miami, or will be traveling a lot more to Miami. What's the best place to eat in Miami? You can name a couple. Uh, so there's a fast casual place that is a chain down there. It's called Chicken Kitchen. And it was just an, all the rage growing up. So it was like Caribbean chicken. Back then, people were allowed to eat rice without feeling guilty about eating rice. So it was over better rice. And that's really good mustard curry sauce. So it's still good. There's like other variants, probably higher inversions of it now. I think it's like two chefs and a chicken. I think it's one other one that's out there. But this whole fast casual thing in Miami of this chicken and rice, and then now you can put a chicken over lettuce. That's great. There's a Chinese restaurant in Miami that's phenomenal. It's called Tropical Chinese. You would never think of Miami for like Chinese restaurants. 
tropical Chinese is quite good. And then Michael's Genuine Food and Drink in Wynwood is kind of the old stalwart of the Wynwood part of town, which one was kind of the up and coming artsy scene of town that, that kind of uh, changed. And then quite honestly, I haven't lived there in so long. So like all of the newest, hippest places, I kind of go to the old places. So, you know, they're old standbys, but they're pretty good. Great. Now, who is your fintech hero? I think there's some very interesting people like, I'm not going to butcher his last name, apologies, Serena Vason and some of the stuff he was working on, some of the COVID stuff. And he, he, I think he's in Andreessen Horowitz at this point in time, really interested in what he's doing. You know, all of the like Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk and all those like, yes, they're, they're all tremendous people. And actually Jeff Bezos went to my high school in Palmetto in Miami, Miami Palmetto, he's valedictorian there. So I guess by definition, I have to say that one, but, uh, but ultimately I'm really curious about fintech folks that are that are really mission driven and trying to solve and outcomes in better society. And so that's kind of how I'm looking at it. But um, you know, I, I don't know if I'm going to walk out of this recording booth that I'm in right now and and basically find myself in a different industry because I'm a cop to the fact that I'm not a pure technologist. <laughs> Thoughts on alternative assets in retirement plans? Needs to get there, hundred percent. This is where maybe thinking about some elements that are artificial in retirement plans could be changed. Not sure we need to be a daily liquidity. If daily liquidity is what restricts us from having alternative assets, I'd rather go the other way and get alternative assets into portfolios and tell people they can have monthly liquidity or weekly liquidity. But that's 10 seconds. So yeah. Love that. And I think Alto IRA is a company that we've had on the podcast. They're Nashville-based. They're a great one working in that space. Give them a, a quick shout out. Favorite thing about Nashville so far? The hills, the greenery. I mean, I've lived in major cities Nashville is a very livable city. It's a very convenient city. I'm sure well, it's uh, easy to say that without traffic, but it's beautiful. It's lush. It's hilly. You can be hiking. You can be biking. You can be doing a lot of stuff outdoors. And you can live indoor outdoor life for the majority of the year. And last question, funniest work from home moment this year. Oh, okay. Maybe give me 20 seconds of this one. So I lived in Chicago for a better part of eight years. And pre-COVID, I never really worked from home. I was either in a plane traveling around meeting people or I was in the office. And so we had an office in the house and we had it nicely furnished, but we like literally was gathering dust and nobody's working on it. So my father-in-law is kind of starting his disgorgement process of getting older early. So he's just giving stuff away to everybody. Like, here, take this. I don't want this anymore. So he gave us this tapestry and it's like this tapestry he got while he was on station in Germany. And it's like, it wasn't fitting the aesthetic of the rest of the house, but it's one of those things where you kind of have to put it up because when he shows up, you kind of show him that we appreciated it. So I had this huge tapestry in the office. That we thought nobody ever saw the light of day. And then basically we go to COVID and I'm in the office 12 hours a day, it feels like. So then basically behind me is this huge tapestry and it became the icebreaker story for literally every single meeting I, I did. So I didn't have any sort of like any sort of like human mishaps, errors or anything like that. It was just more of like, what the hell is that behind you? And it's like, okay, here's the story. But but yeah, that's the, the embarrassing kind of work from home COVID moment that, that was continuous. That's great. Well, Jordan, it was great having you on the Wharton FinTech podcast today. I want to thank yeah, you again for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it. And hopefully it was a, a good session for everybody. And um, thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauck.